0: Would you mind standing with me in honor of God's word? We are starting a series today called I Am. And the first message is titled, Just I Am. So here we go. John chapter 8. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. This is Jesus speaking. And he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for today. Jesus, your eyes have fire in them. And the important thing today is that we see you, that we hear you, and that we respond to you. Lord, hide me. Lord, you know I get excited, but it's not my excitement that's important. It's yours. Come and speak like only you can to every single heart, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So last night, Alice and I went over to Oregon and saw in the theater, the, the, the drama, a musical called Titanic. And we saw the whole story of Titanic again. It's very different than the movie. It goes very close to what the actual facts were with the Titanic. Now, here's the interesting thing. The guy that designed the ship knew, after it hit the iceberg, that it was going down. If three, he had all of these extra compartments. If three of them were filled with water, the ship would still float. But six were filled. He knew, beyond a shadow of a doubt, this thing is going down. And he told the captain that. This ship is going to sink. And And the captain said, how long do we have? He said, an hour and a half. An hour and a half, and this thing is going to sink. Well, here's the problem. They only had lifeboats for a 1,000. And there were 2,000 on the ship. So in 90 minutes, a 1,000 people are going to die. And so the captain has to decide how he's going to break the news. And it is thought that if we just say it, it's going to create panic. And so... Uh, everybody puts on life vest for a different reason and, and they just kind of downplay what is actually going on. But for a thousand people, of course this happened in our history in 1912, in 90 minutes, class, first class, second class, third class, and all the privileges and all the depravities, class isn't going to matter 90 minutes from now. Money, there's all this talk about money and who's got money, and who doesn't have money, and what money could buy, and what I can do with my money, and money, 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 money. Money in 90 minutes for a thousand people is going to mean absolutely nothing. How much had you had, how much little you had, it's gonna mean absolutely nothing. And then plans. Everybody's talking about their plans. There's plans to get married. There's plans to have children. There's, there's plans of the, in the third class of what they're going to do when they get to America, the promised land, and their life's going to be better, and they're going to be this, they're going to be that, and everybody's talking about their plans and what they're going to do, and, and the, the, the guy that, that uh, is in charge of the thing wants this thing to go fast because he wants to have a great name and, and for everybody to, 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 to sail on this wonder of man called the Titanic. But in 90 minutes... None of those plans are going to make one hill a difference. In 90 minutes, for at least half of them, the only thing that will matter is their relationship with God, whether they have a relationship with God or not. 90 minutes. One thing will be important. Okay, what, what's that got to do with us? Okay. Thank you. Thanks for asking. Um, Laughter. If you and I could see our lives as they actually are in the setting of eternity, we would all understand this. We all have about 90 minutes. There's going to be an intruder, an invader on your life called death. The Bible says our life here is a vapor. If you could see it in comparison to eternity, you'd see it just here for a very little time. And we get so caught up in our position and our class and how we're viewed by other people and in our money and what money's going to buy us and our retirement money and, and our how old our car is or how, and money, 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 money. And then, of course, we're just filled with plans. What we're going to do today, what we're going to do tomorrow, what we're going to do for vacation, what we're going to do, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, yet... There's only one thing that really is going to matter in the end and that's your your relationship with God. Folks, this thing's going down. This thing's this thing's going down. It is it is today it's time to get right with God. So, growing up, we never had cable TV. It was, my dad insisted that it was a waste of money, and so we always had an antenna, and we had this little thing that could move the antenna. And so TV was always just a, a little fuzzy, but, and especially during Packer games, it got very intense. If that TV went out, my dad was up there, and, and we, it, was always, it, was always, it was always on an antenna, and, but it's very ironic. The day that we got cable TV, because here's why we got it. It's 1990. My dad was filled with cancer. The doctors said there's nothing. There's nothing more we can do. Hospice came in, put a hospital bed right into our living room, and my dad spent his free time, a lot of his free time, watching baseball or football or. Thing. We didn't know how long he lived. So we, what we did is we got cable. And we got this TV set up at great expense and work. We get this TV set up in the living room that's just positioned just so dad can see it. And we just think this is just gonna be the greatest thing for him to pass time doing his favorite thing, watching ball games. And, and so we turn it on. The very first time we turn it on, it's the, it's the Brewer game. And he's got the remote. And he turns it off and he says this, this I have no interest in this. Do you know that that TV never went on again? Four days before he died, my dad cried out in the night. My sister Katie was on watch with him. And he said, all right, what's the barrier to Jesus? Today, I'm going to talk to you today about your eternal destiny and how it is linked up with Jesus Christ. By the end of today. You're going you're to have to decide. If what I'm saying is the truth. And that how is my. Eternity. Hooked up with what I believe. About Jesus. And my relationship with him. Who is. Jesus of Nazareth. First. Who is he. Scripturally. John says that before Abraham was, Jesus says, I am. This is the Greek word, uh, ego, I It's used several times in the book of John, which we will see later on. But when, G- when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, the Jews immediately picked up stones. Why? Because he's claiming to be the God of the Old Testament. I am is how God revealed himself. His, his name, that he revealed himself to Moses. He is the I am theologians have looked into why, why does he call himself I am? I am means he is the preexistent one. He is the self-sufficient one. He is the uncreated one. He just simply is. Notice what Jesus does not say. Before Abraham was, I was. That's what we would expect him to say. Before Abraham was, I was. No, no. Before Abraham was, I am. I am transcends time. He's outside of time. Time cannot hold him. He is the I am. And then Jesus says, Abraham saw my day. Huh? When did Abraham see his day? It says that the Lord appeared to Abraham with two angels and gave uh, what was going to happen with Sodom? in Genesis 19 24, it says, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. The word Lord there is I am. It is translated Yahweh, it's translated Jehovah. In our current translations, it's translated Lord. It is God in heaven and God on earth. The, the Trinity is, is introduced in the Old Testament. Jesus is the I am of the burning bush. The three other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the Synoptic Gospels, which just means they cover the same period of time. It means to view together, to get all the information. You've got to view them together. They start with Jesus' humanity, and they allow us the, the progression, the disciples gradually discovered the, the true identity of Jesus, that he was deity. And so the, these three gospels, let us discover it with them, all three of them highlight the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus is transformed. His body is transformed and they see him in his glory and they see that that body was just a, a covering for Deity. In all three of those Gospels, near the end, after they've asked Jesus question after question after question, Jesus says to them, I got a question for you. And here's the question he asks. You guys say, speaking to the Jewish leaders, that Messiah is the son of David. And he's quoting Psalm 110 now. He says, how is it that David calls him Lord? In Psalm 110 it says, the Lord said to my Lord, and it says after Jesus said that, no one ever asked him any more questions. <laughs> They're like, whoa, who are we talking to? Um, he's not David's son. He is a, a, one of his descendants, but he is before David. He is the one that David called Lord. Those three reveal you. you we, we're in the story, and we get to see progressively the identity of Jesus. John starts with the divinity of Christ. Here's John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. And then in verse 14, And the Word became flesh, And dwelt among us and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John says the gospel does not start at the birth. The gospel started in heaven. He was God in the beginning. God, the creator, the one whom God God created all things through this one. That one, the one that created you, appeared on earth Veiled in flesh. This is who Jesus is scripturally. In John chapter 18, unfortunately, our versions, um, to try to make it grammatically correct, water down what is said. Let me read to you out of the NAS. John chapter 18, verses 6 through 8. So when he said to them, I am he... They drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore, he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. So here's, here's the interesting thing. The NAS gives you just what the Greek says. And if they add a word, they put it in italics. Okay, in, in this... The he is added. It's, it's in italics. It's not what Jesus didn't say. I am he. That makes it grammatically correct. Here's what Jesus says. You're se- who are you seeking? We're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And He says this. I am. I am. And they all fall over. <laughs> he says I am. And everybody just fall. All the guards fall over. They get back up. They dust themselves off. Jesus said who are you seeking? They said Jesus of Nazarene. He says a second time. I am. Just take me. Don't take any of them. Why is that so significant? (laughs) Jesus was not taken, folks. He's the I am. He says a word and everybody falls over. Those soldiers did not take him. They knew it. He gave himself to them. He offered himself up as a sacrifice for the human race. Secondly, who is Jesus historically? So if you're an unbeliever, it's a huge jump to go right to, oh, okay, I have to believe God became a human being. The creator became a human being. Let's, so let's not start there. Let's start with this. This question. Was Jesus the greatest man who ever lived? We're going to start there. And, and I'm going to make the case... You decide, you, you decide whether it's true historically or not, that Jesus of Nazareth was the greatest man that ever lived. So let me give you some proofs. Number one, he split time. It's 2019. Do you know why our time system says it's 2019? It's dated from his birth. We, we measure time in B.C. and A.D. on the birth of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Second, there are more books written about him than any other person who ever lived. Let me, I'm just going to read this to you. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never went to college. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. Yet in the Library of Congress, which holds 32 million books in three buildings, the largest collection on the earth, there are more books about Jesus of Nazareth than any other person Whoever lived. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about movies. We talked about what story has the most movies made about it, and 25 movies have been adapted from Charles Dickens' story, uh, The Christmas Carol. 25 different adaptations of The Christmas Carol have appeared in film. And so that's the, that's the story that's had the most in film. But, they, of course, they have to put a little asterisk, except for the Bible. Uh, countless have been made about the different characters in the Bible, but just about Jesus, the story of Jesus. Do you know how many movies have been made about the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? 78 movies. So that's three times the second, the, the one that is, is second. Three times, 78 movies about Jesus. Now let's talk about the words that he spoke. Oh my. The Bible is not just the best-selling book of all time with over six billion copies in print. It is by far the best-seller every single year. Do you know that in America alone, 100 million Bibles are printed every single year. 20 million of those are bought. The, the highest nonfiction or fiction book usually each year is about 5 million. It's a fourth of what the Bible is every single year. His words are. Now, this does not include electronic copies. In 2017 alone, one program of the New Testament was downloaded 300 Million times. So this doesn't even count all of the electronic versions. Who is he? Historically, I would say he is the greatest man who ever lived. Now, okay, you can grant that, but that doesn't make him God. So liberal theologians for centuries would say this John, who Uh, The early fathers say John was written last. The other three Gospels were the first ones written. John was written last. And so what later liberal theologians argued was this. John... It's not John the Beloved. It's not John the Apostle. This is somebody way later, generations later, that's using John's name and that Jesus gradually became God. That man made Jesus into God. And this happened over time. And frankly, that argument holds a lot of weight. We, can, we understand people can make other people into God. People can make other people idols. We, there's something in us that wants to lift up a human being and call him something greater so that we have somebody to inspire us, somebody to... So that the argument, yeah, we could understand that argument. But here's what we found historically. In 1920, they found a fragment. It is the oldest fragment of the New Testament. And even though John, the early father, said was the last one written, this is... By far, the earliest parchment we have of the New Testament. It's called P52. It is a fragment of the Gospel of John. When they found it, the top paleographers in the world, and those are people that examine the type of paper that it's on, the type of writing it is, and they can give you the date within about 50 years of when that was written. And the, all of the paleographers that they originally submitted it to, the top three in the world, all said they came back with the exact same date. This was written 100 to 150 A.D. This is, this is early in the 2nd century but here's the here's the thing it was found in egypt so paleographers say this listen if a copy is found in egypt knowing transportation in the de- that day the autograph copy which is which is the original which they know was in judea had to have been decades earlier probably late in the 1st century which is exactly when the early fathers said john Wrote, historically, who is Jesus of Nazareth? Acts 17, 30 through 31. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. God's proof that Jesus was who he said he was is his resurrection in our history. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus did not physically resurrect in our history, Christianity is not true. Christianity, is it joins all the other religions of man's best attempt, man's longing, man's manipulation of trying to give people comfort and tell people to be nice to each other. But it is not true. It is based on an event in history. You say, well, Pastor Tom, how can there be evidence for that? Trust me, there's a lot of evidence for the resurrection. Gary Habermas uh, argues the resurrection and the universities all over the world, and we could go into all of the proofs that you can look up for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But all I want you to know today is that if this didn't actually happen in history, then Christianity is not true. It is based on a historical objective fact, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. All right, that brings us to my main point of today, who is Jesus of Nazareth logically? So, in our uh, Intimacy with God conference, one of our young adults, actually it was my daughter Bethany, uh, spoke on Thursday morning, and she spoke on faith. Faith. We all know the importance of faith, but she she spoke on the Greek word for faith, and she started by talking about our English definition of faith. There are several, but culturally, Google gives this as the current definition of faith. Strong belief in God or in the doctrines of a religion based on spiritual apprehension rather than proof. So, faith means to believe without evidence. It means to kind of set aside your mind to believe. Now, Disney has, has used this definition. It, it absolutely drives me crazy. When there is like, especially around Christmas, that there's this virtue in believing. And the the less proof there is, the more virtue there is. Because you just believe. And there's magic because you believe. And if you just believe, there's magic. And then Hallmark picked up on it. And you know I'm into Hallmark Christmas movies. They they got 22 premieres every year. I usually see, you know, I don't see all of them. I probably see 21. Anyway. um, Alice is here, so it's probably all 22. Anyway. Anyway. And so they picked up on this, it drives me absolutely nuts. That it it just, there's this virtue in believing. There's no evidence, but you just feel it, and so you believe, and that makes you better than people that don't believe. Listen, there's no virtue in believing. If what you're believing is a lie, that's gonna be a hindrance to you, that's gonna hold you back. The idea that somehow God has asked us to set aside our mind so that we can just believe. Is absolutely unbiblical. Jesus said, Love God with all of your heart and with all of your mind. Thank you. The Greek word, pistis, Beth defined it from the Greek the state of being persuaded of something, to believe something because you are persuaded that it is true. In Greek rhetoric, one would use proof or evidence to construct an argument, to appropriate, to appropriate pistis, which is faith. It is, it is an argument that uh, supplements or leads to somebody believing. There are two parts to faith. Biblical faith. One is objective. It's based on something that happened in history, something that happened in front of the whole world. And then to to, to, to become complete, you need, there's a subjective piece to faith that will take you to 100%. Hebrews 11.1. Now faith is the evidence of things not seen. It is, this, it is the substance it says of things hoped for. There's something underneath faith that has persuaded you. And so Beth's argument is biblical faith requires not just an believing the facts about the resurrection, but there is a piece that is subjective. This is Romans 10:17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing, By the word of God. The word of God there is the rhema of God. That God actually has to speak. Faith has to, there has to be a movement from God subjectively for you to believe. She used Paul's faith. Paul's faith was certainly based on the resurrection that had happened in their time. But guess what else his faith was based on? That Jesus had appeared to him on a road. That Jesus had spoke to him, had said, Saul, Saul. And so that's how you get to 100%. You don't get to 100% just with your mind. You need to have a subjective experience with objective facts, subjective experience, and that leads to this faith that, is, that comes to us as a gift by the grace of God. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Peace, So, I want to talk about logically who Jesus is. Now we're we're back to objective. I'm talking to your mind right now. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said, because of who Jesus claimed he was scripturally, logically, you don't get to choose that he is a man, just a really great man, Because he claimed to be God. You don't get to choose that he was a great prophet. That is not one of your options. Logically, you can't say he was a great, great prophet. No, no, no. He claimed to be God. So logically, you only have three options. You either have liar. He knew he wasn't God and he was telling everybody he was God. Or you have lunatic. He thought he was God, but he wasn't God. Or... He is who he said he was. He is Lord. So Sherlock Holmes, we, we all love Sherlock, um, A and Doyle's creation said this in one of his books. One of A and Doyle's books about Sherlock. He said this. Follow the evidence. You've got to be committed to the actual evidence. The evidence will lead you to the truth, however unlikely that truth might be. Now, I, I'll be the first one to say to you, we're asking a lot to believe that God stepped out of heaven and walked on this earth and, and came into our time and that there was a human being in the Roman Empire and it was actually God among us. That has no small feat to believe that. That's a lot to believe. So instead of just trying to believe that, let's look at evidence. Consider with me the evidence. First, his character. There's been no other character in all of history like Jesus. His accuser, his betrayer, Judas, said he's innocent. His crucifier, Pontius Pilate, washed his hands, said he's innocent. There's no one else in history that, while being crucified on this cross, says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Are you kidding me? Forgiving your enemies? There's no more beautiful character in all of history. You read the Gospels and it's like, oh my, he's for the oppressed. He values women. He values everybody. No matter, he, all are welcome to him. Everybody wanted to be around him. It's the beauty, the beauty of who he is is stunning. No character like him in all of history. Is this character the character of a liar? Is this the character of a crazy person? Or is it possible that God walked on this planet? Look at his deeds. He did stuff nobody else had done. He he caused blind eyes to see, blind eyes from birth to see. He caused deaf ears to hear. He rose the dead in his ministry. Nobody had ever done any works like that. The deeds of Jesus. Now, it's funny because since he was on this earth, there have been all kinds of eye openings and deaf ears and People raised from the dead. Smith Wigglesworth raised eight people from the dead in his ministry. Reinhard Bonnke, who's a contemporary of ours, has had 75 million recorded conversions in Africa. And it all came through signs and wonders, through miracles. I, I remember hearing him tell the story of the very first meeting when he had. He was a failed pastor, and God told him to go out in a field and go to another city, and he held this; he rented this big stadium, and of course, nobody came. It was like 100 people there, and in the first meeting, God said, I want you. He's in the middle of his message. God interrupts his message. How many know that God can interrupt your message? <laughs> and says, I want you to tell everybody that's blind to stand up. There were three blind people. They all stood up, and he said... Uh, I'm going to, in a moment, I'm going to declare Jesus' name over you, and when I do that, all three of your your eyes are going to open. He says the name of Jesus over them. All of their eyes pop open. The next night, the the stadium's filled. And that continues on for years and years and years in Africa. Stunning, stunning meetings. If you ever want to see a YouTube, go type in Reinhard Bonnke. Crusades, Africa, and you'll see some of the the largest audiences that have ever been gathered. It, it's just insane. All of these miracles that have happened, all these eyes that have been opened, and ears that have been, and dead people that have been raised. Do you, here's the here's the one thing they have in common: all of them are in, done in Jesus' name. It's all about Jesus. Tell me which is more impressive. When Jesus walked on water or when he made Peter walk on water? Jesus Jesus doing miracles when he was on earth was very impressive. Jesus doing miracles through regular, normal, broken, sinful people? That's stunning. (laughs) And it's been going on for 2,000 years. No one did deeds like him. The greatest deed, of course, is the resurrection from the dead. Jesus himself rose from the dead. Are these the deeds of a liar or a lunatic? Or did God walk among us? And then, let's talk about his words. (laughs) Think about what you have to believe. Today, everybody quotes Jesus. Every religion quotes Jesus. Jesus' words, we already talked about how many on print. It's insane. Are these the words of a liar? Are these the words of a lunatic, or does the evidence cause us to include, to conclude, however unlikely it may seem, that God visited this planet, that Jesus of Nazareth, fully man, was also fully God? You have to decide that. To be a Christian will not cost you your mind, but it will cost you your pride. First Corinthians, this is where I'm going to close today. 1st Don't get that excited. There's still quite a bit left, but this is the last passage. First Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So first I want to look at why preaching the cross and why Jesus himself is foolishness to the Gentiles. That's what, I want to look at that one first. Jesus explained the worldview of that day. The book of Mark is written to Romans, which are Gentiles. It's all about the, the context of Gentiles. And here's what he says in Mark 10:42. He says, "The Gentiles see greatness when people are." have a bunch of people serving them and those people lord it over them. They've got a lot of people under the control that they control. This is how the Gentile world saw it at that time. Power means control. To be great means you're up high and everybody else serves you and you can tell them to do whatever you want to do. That is the definition in that world of what greatness would be. And Jesus turns the whole thing over. And he says, no, no, greatness is not how many serve you, it's how many you serve. And then he says this amazing thing in Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. In the Roman mind, the Gentile mind of that day, Jesus is an utter failure. He's a revolutionary that is not connected to money or power, and he's way out too outspoken, and he gets what every revolutionary does, he dies naked on a cross. Failure, failure, failure. And God says, Mm-mm. I'm saving the whole world through that event. The idea. That you would have the power and not use it, but lay your life down and die a shameful, naked, and, and then have to be raised from the dead. The whole idea is so foolish to the Gentile mind where ego is in the middle. The idea that God would do that is offensive to Gentile pride. It's not Christianity will not cost you your mind, but it will cost you your pride. Then he says this. It is a stumbling block to the Jews. To believe in Jesus, it's going to offend your religious pride. What do I mean? Here's why Jesus was a stumbling block. Let, Let me read to you John chapter 8, 24. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Another, another where they have to add a word. Here's what it actually says. Therefore I say to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now why would that be? So, The Jewish leadership of that day had a a problem that Messiah was going to solve. They were very convinced of their theological arguments for it. The, The religious, the problem that Messiah was going to solve was a political problem. Israel is being oppressed by Rome. They need a really smart really powerful Messiah to deliver them from the control of Rome. And so they're waiting for Messiah who's going to lead his army and he's going to solve the problem of Roman oppression. And oftentimes this is the the Savior we're looking for. The problem we want solved is that we need somebody to help pay our bills. We need somebody to heal our bodies. We need somebody to give us purpose in our life. We need somebody to make our life easier. And Jesus came and he said, no, no, no. Um, First, you've misdiagnosed the problem. Your real problem is not Rome. You don't have a problem with Democrats or Republicans. That's not the problem there's a much bigger problem. It's called sin. Sin is destroying the human race. Sin will create separation from God. And because the problem is so much deeper than you think it is, the solution is so much radical, more radical than you ever imagined. God himself, the I am of the Old Testament, had to step into time and take on human flesh. Why did he have to take on human flesh? Because we sinned. The wages of our sin was death. Human beings had sinned. Only a human being could pay the wages that we owed for our sin. Why did it have to be God? Because whoever that was was going to have to keep the law, not just outwardly, but inwardly. They were going to have to live in a very dark, imperfect world and, and, and live a perfect life to be a sacrifice for others. Jesus says, unless you believe I am, you're going to die in your sins. This is the way that God has made for people to get right with him. Now, cults, the reason why we call them cults, they're, they're Christian They use the Bible, they believe in Jesus. The reason why we call them cults is because of the identity that they give to Jesus. Because if you take away divinity from Jesus, you end up with a sacrifice that does not work. You do the math and it doesn't work. So Jehovah Witnesses have taken away the identity of divinity in Jesus. There's only one God, and that's Jehovah. And Jesus was an angel that came down. And yes, Jesus did die for our sins. And now, because Jesus died for our sins, people that are good enough can go to heaven. Now, to take away the divinity, they had to make their own translation. The New World Translation starts out with this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, and they have to add an article that's not in the original, The word was, ah, God. Ah, God, small g. And what do you mean the math doesn't work? Here's why it doesn't work. (laughs) You can't have a man, one man, one human being, even if he's a perfect human being, die for everybody else. It doesn't work. He made a way, they would say, for people that are good enough, you knock on enough doors, you do whatever, you can actually, heaven's already full, there's only 144,000 that go now, you inherit the earth, and that's, it's a whole nother thing. I'm not, I'm not trying to put anybody down, I'm just saying, that's why they're called a cult, is because of the, their issue with Jesus. Why do we call Mormons a cult? Because Mo, Mormons would say he's God, but they would also say you can become a God. It's small g, God, again. And you end up with a works-based system. God has made a way. And that is through the Son of God who was fully God and fully man. Why does the math work? Because if we have all sinned and we've got seven billion sinners on this earth right now, and that doesn't even count all the billions that have already gone before us, how could one man die for everybody else? Well, there's only one way. Is if God Himself decided that He Himself was going to be the sacrifice, that He would be the sacrifice in place of all humanity, and that that's the way He was going to make, and that whosoever believes would be forgiven and saved, not based on how good they are or how religious they are or anything, any goodness of their own, but based on His great love and His great sacrifice. Now this is, this, I promise you, this is how I'm going to end. Romans, Romans 9. Romans 9. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they have pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written... I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. God has made a way of salvation. It is through putting your trust in Christ. But it is confronting your religious pride. It's confronting how you think it should be. Because whatever we say with our mouths, here's how we think it should be. It should be good people go to heaven. And I'm one of those good people and so I could I be good enough to get to God. Here's the truth. Here's why that's so deceiving. Starters, you're not a good person. I love you and God loves you, but you're not a good person. You're guilty before a holy God. The, the way we get to we're good people is we look at other people, we think we're better than them. It's all based on pride. Religious pride stumbles. I don't think God should do it that. Well, it's, it, God didn't consult you. He didn't consult you. He didn't consult me. He doesn't feel like he owes you anything. This is a very important thing. There's no entitlement. You've got to let go of entitlement. God doesn't owe you anything. But in his great love, he made a way. And that way is through his son, the I am, who came into history and died on a cross. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the tragedy of the Titanic. They had enough lifeboats for 1,000 people. Half could be saved. Did you know that only 550 were saved? 450 seats went untaken because everybody was afraid that they would be turned over if too many got on, and so they ended up only saving 550. 450 seats went untaken. The the overall theme of Titanic is this: human presumption. Humans building something that God Himself couldn't sink. It's human, 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 human. And here's our message today. It's not based. You know how 1 Corinthians 8 1 ends? Let him who boasts boast in the Lord. God has made a way, but the way has taken away all human pride. Nobody gets to boast except if you want to boast about Jesus. He's, he's the way. And Jesus assures us, there's lots of seats open. <laughs> he says, there's he's throwing a wedding for his son, and he sends him out, and the message is this, there's lots of room. Bid them to come. All they need to do is accept my invitation. Here's why I talk about presumption, because I know how young people especially work. Sometimes old people work like this too. Here's, here's pre- what presumption says. I, I'll come to Christ later. I'm going to have fun now. I'll choose Jesus later. Listen, you're, you've misunderstood the gospel. You don't get a choice unless God calls you First. God has to come and call you. God has to knock on your door. Without Jesus coming and awakening you to your situation, you're not even going to know there is a choice. You're going to be one of those people that just live your life out doing whatever to entertain yourself, your money, or whatever, and you can go right into eternity that way away from Jesus. You don't decide when you're going to come to Jesus. The most you and I can do is when he calls— subjectively, when the voice of the Lord comes, when he knocks on the door of our heart, now there's a choice. Now is the day of salvation. Now you can respond. To say, I'm going to do it later, you're presuming on something that there's no guarantee. Amen. It's called the fear of the Lord, folks. There's precious little of it in this country. The fear of the Lord says, God doesn't owe me. And if God is offering something to me, I'm going I'm to take it. Today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your heart. The worship team can come. We have every head bowed, every eye closed. I'm out of time. So if you're here today, and you're not sure if your sins are forgiven, you're not sure if you have a relationship with God, you're not sure if you died, you would go to heaven. But today, you can say this. Jesus is knocking. Jesus is. It's more than a preacher excited. Jesus is knocking on my door. If that is you, let me tell you something. Jesus loves you, and he wants to forgive you. That's why he came. That's why he died. It doesn't matter how many sins. It doesn't matter how long you sinned. It doesn't matter how horrible it is. Jesus wants to forgive you. He's knocking. He's coming to you, saying, I love you, and I died for you. Open the door. I have every head bowed and every eye closed because it's between you and God. The reason why people raise a hand is because somebody helped me pray the prayer to open my door. And I love helping other people. So if that is you, you know you're a sinner and you know that Jesus is knocking and you want to respond to it, would just raise your hand real high right now long enough for me to see it. I see that hand and 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 that hand. I'm up in the balcony now. Just wave if you're in the balcony and you have a hand up so I can see it. Okay, I see that hand. I see that hand. Thank you. God bless you. Yep, and everybody can put their hands down that raised it for right now. Is there anybody else? By upraised hand. You You didn't put it up the first time, but you want to join all of these that have already responded. You want to say yes. Yes, gotcha. God bless you. I don't want anybody to leave this service regretting that they didn't raise their hand. Anybody else? Okay, if you raised your hand, just put your hand over your heart right now. Even if I didn't see your hand, but you raised it, put it over your heart right now. Pray something like this. Lord, thank you for loving me. I know I'm a sinner. I know I need a radical solution. I am opening the door of my heart. Come in and save me. Lord, I'm not asking you to make my life better. I'm asking you to become my life. I'm asking you to become the center, the Savior and the Lord of my life. I receive right now by faith your gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. And then could we stand to our feet? The second call is simply this. Moses prayed it in Psalm 90. He prayed this. Help me to number my days. Help me to know how brief my life is so that I will present to you a heart of wisdom. That that simply means this. It's only when you understand how short and brief your life is that you're going to make right choices. If you think this is all there is and and, and it's just about fun today and about, you're going to make really bad choices. So we need a revelation of how brief our life is. And if you want that, I certainly want that. Just open your arms right now. We're going to pray. Lord, we're living on a ship that's going down. But we're living, oftentimes, as if it's permanent, as if there's, no, there's nothing, this is, the, this is the main event. Lord, this is not the main event. Would you help us to know how short and brief our days are so that we can make right choices, choices that glorify you, choices that are wise, choices that will affect eternity, not just our own, but other people's. God, please help us not go the way of the world go your way. Jesus, we love you today. Would you come and burn in our hearts, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, guys. We're going to have ministry teams at the front. If you'd like more prayer, come on up. Otherwise, God bless you, and have a great week.